Welcome to the House Arrest Show, hosted by three-time Grammy nominee and six-time Dove Award-winning artist and actor T-Bone. Today's guest is Grammy Award-winning artist Mac Powell of Third Day. You're tuned into House Arrest with T-Bone. Please welcome singer, songwriter, and producer extraordinaire, the man, the legend. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you my man, Mac Powell. What's up, baby boy? This is like, I've done so many of these things since COVID. You know, yeah. everybody's got a show, everybody's got a, you know, a podcast and a Zoom, but this is like for real legit. This is like the best. You got music, you got a DJ, you got sponsorship, you got all kinds of stuff going on. You got a microphone in front of you. I mean, hey. this is Hey, man, we appreciate it, man. I believe in excellence in ministry, and that's what we're trying to do, man. We're trying to put together a great show, and not only a cool show that has cool visuals and all that, but we love bringing on, you know, huge artists such as of your, as yourself, people that are relevant, people that have something to say, and we love to tell stories, man, and share the gospel this way. So, Mac, we want to thank you so much for coming on, man. How you doing? I know you're actually in the Georgia area. Tell me where you're from, where you live. Give me all that good rundown right quick. Yeah, well, I'm originally from the great state of Alabama, but when I was in high school, we moved over here. My dad got transferred with his job, and so I'm still an Alabama boy at heart, but Georgia is home for me. Uh, I you know, went through high school and college here, and we started third day, like right out of high school. Markley and myself, we went to high school together. Started the band, just a little local thing. It grew and grew and grew. It kept on growing and went way beyond any any of our dreams and, and thoughts and goals. And we were just blessed wow. to be able to do that for over 20 years. Wow. And uh, we, had our, we had our farewell tour in June of 18. So just uh, about two years ago. And uh, I've been working on some solo stuff since then. Got a new record coming out in the spring. Going to be signing a record deal soon. So you'll be hearing about that. But that's uh, all awesome. Busy, busy, you know, of course, like you said, out on the road with two of my favorites, like uh, just wonderful mentors and great friends, Stephen Curtis Chapman and Michael W. Smith, uh, having a blast with them. You know, COVID has kind of thrown us all, uh, you know, array and it's, everything's kind of mixed up and different, but we found out a way to go out and still have everybody socially distanced apart and yet enjoy a show. We're going to these drive-in theaters, you know, which I hadn't been to one since I was a little, little kid. Right. And believe it or not, they're they're all across the U.S., kind of in these little towns, and we go there, and people, you know, pull up their cars and tailgate, and they'll even camp out on their hoods or you know their cars, or maybe they'll bring a blanket or something, and it's just a, a lot of fun playing a lot of old school music and and getting out there again and doing it. So we're, we got another tour coming up pretty soon, September 20th through uh, the middle of October, and I'm uh, really excited about getting back out. That- with that's cool, man. And I want to ask you about that because being an a entertainer and a performer myself, I know that we are definitely in, in crazy times. You know, we're doing things that we've never had to do before. You know, out here in California, all the restaurants, everything is outside now. They had to literally build shade and put all these tables and everything outside because, you know, we're not allowed to eat inside of the restaurants. And I'm, I'm just wondering, what is that like? Like, how how are you mentally getting prepared for this? Because, and, and I'm also trying to figure out on this tour that you're doing um, with Michael W. Smith and with Stephen Curtis Chapman, are you performing in one place and it's going to air on all the different screens or are you literally going to so so it's on one 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 performance you're going to no we are there we're there every time live in the wow city, the city is listed we are there they put a stage like a, a like kind of a moving trailer uh put a stage right in front of the huge screen wow then they you know got we got guys with cameras here and then they cast the, the show up on the screen but yeah we're there in person every every city that's listed that's amazing. How do you stay focused? I mean, obviously, I don't think you've done this yet. It's something that you're about to do for the first time. We actually did about 10 shows a month ago, and it went wow. great. Uh, almost all of them were sold out. I think everybody was super excited to just have something to do, and people still felt safe felt safe because they could stay in their cars if they wanted to. Or yeah. Like, yeah. A lot of people like that drive SUVs or trucks, they kind of re- put them in reverse so they could put, get in their tailgate. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it was... Uh, it was safely 
uh, done and done really well. And I think the Awakenings concerts who put it together did an amazing job. And there's a lot of Christian artists who are going out now, right now, like Zach Williams and, and Big Daddy Weave. Toby's out right now, mm -hmm. casting crowns. So uh, we're uh, we're continuing to do. It. We'll hope we're hoping that you know things will improve in our nation and our world where right. we can get to where we can do normal touring again. But until then, uh, we feel like this is the safest way to do it. Right now, what is that like from a performer's, you know, point of view? Because we're used to being the energy from the crowd. It's like I always say, it's like the NBA. The NBA, they're playing right now with no noise. There really is no home court advantage because you don't have the, 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 your people, your home fans screaming and getting that adrenaline. What is it like being on stage? And like you're saying, the cool thing is some trucks can turn around and have people out there. But for the most part, people are literally inside of their cars. How do you connect with the audience when you're doing a concert like that? It's, it's pretty hard. You have to mentally prepare yourself. Like we knew that going in, in advance. In fact, Toby Mac had gone, our good friend had gone out and done uh, some shows maybe a month before we were going out. And I called him and I asked him, you know, what's it like? He said, man, it's really different. You have to just prepare that you're not going to get the feedback and the response that you're used to. So you have to just go ahead and give it, you know, get in your mind um, you know, giving it all you got right away. You know, I, I know when you've rehearsed before or even have been if, if playing playing athletics, if you just practice, you want to always practice up to where you're playing, but we really don't do that. We don't push ourselves until we're actually in the game, you know? Right. And so we have to, it's almost like you feel like you're not really, it's almost like it feels like a rehearsal. You got a few people up front that you can see but uh, one of the stories I like to tell is Michael W. Smith has this classic song called Friends. Friends are friends forever, you know, and it's uh, within the Christian market. It's a huge, huge song. People that's 25 years old and people know, 35 years old, people love it and know it. And so when Michael goes into that, he says, hey, hold up your, hold up your lights from your phone. That's when, when I see thousands of lights out in front of me, I go, okay, they're out there. I can yeah. see them now with the lights, but you can't hear them and you can't really see them, you know, when it's dark outside with the, with the cars and stuff. So, you know, it's different, yet I'm so thankful that we can still do it. Yeah, and it's like you said, it's something that you gotta mentally prepare yourself like, you know, sometimes you don't need a crowd to be able to do what you do. You, I mean, we all do what we do for the love. Obviously, we love God, but the love of the music as well. So it's like you get into the zone when you grab your guitar, when you're with your band. It's like sometimes that sound check, you know, you feel almost like if you're performing in front of a huge crowd, you just begin to feel that, you know, that feeling that music gives you and feel that adrenaline. And you got to just say, OK, this is it. You know, it's game time. And like you said, when you see the lights, then it's like, whoa, we're really doing this. There's really a lot of people out there enjoying it. But I want to ask you something because going back to third day real quick and, and I know recently you guys did you know your your farewell tour I was blessed to be a part of a farewell tour as well Mark Stewart from Audio Adrenaline those guys are some of my best friends I was actually on the very last Audios tour with Mercy Me and Audio Adrenaline we went all over the you know all over the country and we did the very last concert in Hawaii at the Shell and that's where we you know they did their legendary last concert and I remember man it was bittersweet like Mark was had tears of joy, but he also had tears like, man, I'm leaving this and, it, and it's kind of crazy. What was it like for you, you know, going around, you know, it kind of reminds me of Kobe, like when he was going to all the arenas and waving hello and everyone's just giving him all this admiration and love. And he knows this is the last time I'll be performing here, you know, with, th with this team and in front of these people. What was it like for you to be on that farewell tour? What, what, give me some of the, the, the experiences and some of the heartwarming stories that, that you went through, things that you saw and you felt when you were on that tour. It's a great question because I think it's different than most people would, would think. For us, uh, most people don't understand and realize that we had kind of been, we had made plans a couple of years before that to end the band. Okay. We also had commitments to each other and commitments, you know, to the record label and touring people and all that stuff. So there are things we wanted to finish and finish well. It was uh, when we realized we were done, we couldn't just quit. And we didn't want to just quit. We knew we had right. to... It took some time, but even before that farewell tour, most people don't know, we had not toured for 18 months before that. Wow. So when we had done our last tour 18 months before that, we still didn't realize, we didn't understand, are we gonna do some more shows? Are we, or are we just gonna kind of fade into the sunset and maybe everybody will forget about us, you know? <laughs> and uh, a big thing, yeah, a big thing happened um, <laughs> that may not seem like a big deal, but uh, I'm a big Tom Petty fan. 
who was, you know, originally from Florida, but is known as a California guy. Right. He was lived in Southern California for most of his life. And when Tom Petty died, I was kind of like, I don't really get depressed or sad very much. I'm a pretty upbeat guy. Yeah. And my wife, after about two weeks, she's like, what's going on with you? What's the problem? I said, I feel like my friend died. Even though I'd never met him, his music so much influenced me that I felt like I'd lost a friend. And so she called me a few days later and she was in the middle of something and I was in the middle of something. And she said, I know you don't want to hear this, but I really think you should do a farewell tour because the way you feel about Tom Petty is the way so many fans will feel about you in third day. Right. And so I thought about that. I was like, you know what? We do give our, we need to give our fans at least a chance to try to come see us one last time. And so, so we, because of timing with everybody, with things we all had going on, we didn't get to do many shows. We only did, I think it was 16 shows or so, maybe mm-hmm. 20 shows at the most. Uh, but I'm so glad. And it wasn't an easy tour because we had to cover the whole U.S. in about a month. So wow. We, out, we started in the Northwest and we made our way down the coast and then we, went over to Texas and up in the Middle West. And so there was a lot of flying. There wasn't a lot of bus riding. It was like flying from one city to the next a lot. So I didn't get a lot of sleep. I was sleeping. I was, sorry, I was I was singing about three hours a night, which is a lot more than I normally sing. And so it wasn't, it wasn't fun per se. I'm glad we did it. But uh, towards the end, once we got a little bit of rest, it was a lot of fun, but I, it, it was, uh, it was one of those things where it was it paid a it was a heavy toll on me a lot heavier than I thought it would be physically yeah. and spiritually. And I remember doing the last we did our last show at Red Rocks and right outside of Denver, and it was a sold out show. And we had people from I think 35 different countries had flown in to come see us from around the world. Yeah, it was it was amazing, and I just I was so relieved that we were done that I didn't uh, I really wasn't sad. The whole yeah. Time. But once we got to that last show, I mean, I, I stepped off stage and I just lost it. Like, I yeah. didn't know that was pinned up inside of me. And it was a good cry. And it was just, you know, it was a lot of, uh, you're going to make me cry now, T-Bone. You're like Oprah <laughs> here now. It was just a lot of years of, uh, you know, good, good memories and, and great friends <clears throat> and uh, a lot of support that we've been given and prayers that people were given for us. And so, it was all of that kind of wrapped up in, in one tour. It was a lot. Wow, man. Yeah. You, you know, we make a lot of people cry on this show, so it's okay, man. Feel free. But tell me, what what was that moment like? Because I remember, man, I even got emotional when I was with, because I toured for so many years with Audio Adrenaline doing stuff, and we would do one-offs here and there. We, sometimes we would do full tours together. But I remember just looking, <clears throat> and I remember kind of even feeling for him, because for myself, I was like, man, this is the last, last time I'm going to be with these guys on stage. But I can imagine for you, the same way it might have been for Mark, it's like when you were looking around, and maybe that's why it hit you toward the end, is that you realize this is the last time I'm going to be on stage with all these guys together as a collective group. And we've toured, you probably started thinking about all the members we've toured here, gone there, done this, done that, you know, been to these awards, accepted awards together, done everything. And you're like, and man, it's like it's gone in a blink of an eye. Like you said, you, you were 20 years together with them. What was that feeling like when you're singing that last song and, you know, and you're just sitting there thinking about those things? Like, did that go through your head? Like, this is it. I'm going to miss my brothers. Yeah, we're going to stay in touch, but it's never going to be this again. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have those feelings. I think for me, I had I had a little bit of time to think about it in advance and to not let it weigh so much on those that last show or even the last week of shows. Yeah. Um, I was really excited and thankful to be able to honestly to be able to say thank you to the fans one last time yeah and even though we know there were so many people that didn't get a chance to see us all all the shows were sold out you know and so and we played a lot of venues besides red rocks we played kind of kind of mid to smaller we wanted it to be a more intimate night we didn't we didn't necessarily it was interesting, like we would play the Fox Theater in Atlanta, which is our hometown, and it sold out, so we had to do two more. So there were so many cities where we were like, we want to do the intimate thing, do the theater, but then they would sell out. Now, Nashville, we played the Ryman, and the whole time I'm thinking, after we, after you find out you sell out, you're like, well, man, we should have played the arena. <laughs> but I like that we played the smaller venues, more intimate, more nights. And it just gave me a, it gave me a chance to kind of think through that stuff in advance, and it didn't weigh too heavy on me until you know until i stepped off stage honestly i didn't really think too much about it um, yeah until it was until it was done 
That's powerful. Now, Mac, take me through. I, I want to hear, you know, what we like to do on this show is we like to hear people's stories. You know, I'm not sure. I want to find out, you know, are you a kid that was raised in church? Were you not raised in church? What was your childhood like coming up, you know, in Georgia or in Alabama, actually? What was that like? What was your home like? And what was your story that led you to Christ? And when you also said, you know what, I know I have a calling over my life. Can you kind of take me through that a little bit here? Yeah, so growing up, I told you in Alabama, I grew up in this little bitty town, man. It was, it was a, at the time, it was a town of about 7,000 people. Wow. It was like, and I, I joke because if we did, there wasn't much there, like as far as like anything that there was no Walmart, there was no, you know, McDonald's, like Russia had a McDonald's before Clanton, Alabama did. Wow. So it was like, there was nothing there. And, and in fact, I didn't live in the town. We lived 20 minutes outside of the town. So I grew up on a dirt road country boy, you know? And uh, we didn't have a lot. We were pretty lower, lower uh, middle class. And so, but it's, it's life and it's what we knew. And we, we went to this little church, a little Baptist church that was real small. It was like, you know, packed out of, packed out like on an Easter or Christmas was a hundred people. And wow. Everybody, everybody kind of lived around half the people that went there. I was related, you know, were cousins or, or close, you know, friends who were growing up with my dad. Now everybody's related, right? <laughs> but you know, it was, it was a good little small town life. And when it was time for me to move to Atlanta, I, mean, I was like, what? I was in, I had just started high school and kind of met my core group of friends. And I was like, man, I don't want to leave this. And I went to, came to Atlanta. And then it took a while, but fell in love with it and made a lot of great friends. And then I had to move again. So I went to three high schools in four years. Wow. That was hard, but God taught me a, a lesson in that time that when he has us in one place and, and wants to move us somewhere else, it's always going to be better. It doesn't mean better in the sense that, okay, you're going to have more friends or you're going to have more money or whatever. But whatever the situation is, when God has us to move, it, there's a reason for it. And it's ultimately, it's, it's for his honor for his glory and for the, for our betterment. And right. so growing up at that little church in Alabama and then moving to Atlanta, I started going to another small church. I gave my life to Jesus when I was real young. I knew even at eight and nine years old, I knew I'd heard just a simple message of the gospel that I was a sinner that needed to be saved. Even as a little kid, it wasn't even so much that I had done a lot of wrong things. It was just that I was born a sinner and there was no way to be good enough. There was no way I was going to, sing enough solos in church and make all the blue haired ladies cry enough. I wasn't going to make enough money to give to charity or to the church. And I was never going to read the Bible enough to save myself. It was God's grace alone, him dying on a cross. That's the only thing that can save me and me receiving that. And so I did that as a young age. I walked that little, little church aisle by myself. Nobody prodded me. Nobody said, Hey, you should go do this. I just heard the invitation when I need this. And, but I, I'd like to say everything was great from then on out, but I remained a baby Christian for a long time. There wasn't much discipleship. It was like, what I called it was that fire insurance. You know, I just was making sure I wasn't going to hell. You know, that's what I think so many people want to do. You don't know and realize the love of God. And so it wasn't until I was a senior in high school and I'd always wanted to be in a rock band. I finally was in this garage band. We were horrible, but we were, it was still something I always wanted. And I'm about to graduate high school and I had no idea what I was going to do with life. I didn't know if I was going to have to join the military. We didn't really have money for me to go to college. I didn't have really a skill to get a real job. And so I, was, I remember sitting on my bed and it was so long ago. I don't want to say it was like yesterday, but it felt like last week. And I just opened up somebody at church and said, you should read the book of Romans. And even though I got saved at an early age, I never, as I told you, I wasn't discipled. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't know anything about it. I just tried to be good, you know? And so for the first time, really, besides reading scriptures in, in church and in Sunday school, I started reading through the book. I didn't know where it was. I had to look in the index at the beginning of Romans. Is that in the Old Testament or the New Testament? So I looked it up. I found it. I started reading it. And T-Bone, man, I'm telling you, it was like God's spirit just opened up my heart and my eyes. And even though I do believe I was saved, he helped me to understand the fullness of the gospel and the fullness and the abundance of living completely for him. And so I went and I was in this, this band, this garage band with Mark and Mark Lee, who was a great friend of mine, we went to school together. And, and I said, man, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm giving my life to Jesus, so I've got to quit this band. 
Uh, this is something I always wanted, but I felt like the Lord was saying, you need to give this up for me. Surrender, surrender it to me. This is something you've always wanted. Now give it to me. And that I didn't understand that, but I had such a faith, such a newfound faith. I was like, God, it's all yours. And so I told Mark and Mark's like, well, why don't we start a Christian band? He had grown up in church and uh, had a similar testimony. I was like, well, I don't know what that is. What's Christian music? I'd never heard of any of that stuff. I'd heard of people like Amy Grant or, you know, Michael W. Smith, I'd heard, or Petra, I'd heard those names, but I didn't know anything about them or any music. And so uh, so I started doing everything I could. I got CCM Magazine, and I just started reading about all these Christian artists, and um, and we just started listening to it, and we, we thought, man, this is amazing. So we wanted to share our faith through our music, and it was, you know, kind of a rock thing. And so, so that's what we started doing, and, and as I said earlier, it just kind of went beyond anything that we, that we ever thought that it would, but it all really honestly through the years, um, for us, what was most important was just knowing that, that God was the reason we were doing it and that that he was almost using Third Day just as much for us in the band as he was for the thousands of people that were hearing our music. You know, he knew that we needed that accountability. We needed that, that you know, to be able to be on stage and know what we were talking about. I didn't want to be a, a hypocrite and be on stage and talk about something I had no idea and not talk about, you know, my faith from 10 years ago or five years ago, but I want it to be today. And so I loved that accountability. I loved that um, opportunity that God gave us and, and that, um, you know, that chance to share our faith through the music. Man, that's powerful, you know, and, and I can relate, man, because I tell people I can relate to people on so many different levels because I'm a guy that has been in the streets, been in gangs, drug deal, done all that, but I'm also a PK, you know, so I know what it's like to be in the church and to be raised in the church. Um, for me, it was kind of the same way, like you're saying, like ministry music is kind of what kept me on the on the straight and narrow because for me, it was the hip hop thing. And when I started doing that, I just kind of like fell into it. Next thing I know, I had this ministry and I was just telling people about God's love. But for so many years, it's something that kept me focused, you know, and like, man, I have to do well because I have this ministry. There's people that are counting on me and so many different things like that. So that that's powerful to hear that, man. I want to know, like, for like because like for you, a, a guy that was raised kind of in church and raised you know um used to seeing god move used to seeing the hand of god used to seeing healing used to you know seeing salvations was there any point in your life because i know that this happens to people that are raised in church that you look over and you're like man i want to try the world people tell me the world is good people you know they, they party they drink they do all these different things I, I wonder what is the world like and sometimes there's a lot of people that say i want to go taste and see what that's like and see if, it, if there's anything good there did you ever kind of go through that wilderness experience where you kind of went out there and said let me try out the world and see what that's all about or were you able to pretty much always stay kind of like focused in and for the most part you know on that christian walk yeah once i gave you know surrendered everything in in high school it was staying on that straight and narrow you know as much yeah. as i can yeah. and, but i think for me like in terms of a little bit of this is not what you're asking but when third day was over i had felt like I had felt this call for a long time for, for to go into, to go outside of Christian music, outside of the walls of the church and try to reach people with, with my music outside of it. So for, I, I tried, I was an independent country artist for, for two or three years. In fact, for probably seven years now, even while Third Day was still going, whenever we had a break, I would go play these little, you know, country clubs in these little towns in the middle of nowhere, you know, the kinds of got that have like the electric bull plugged up in the corner of those places. But it was always, it wasn't necessarily trying the world. It was like still, I would surround myself like all my band, most of them were worship leaders at churches. So it was still a great group of believers together, but trying to share music uh, to people that, that wouldn't normally listen to my music, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I did that for a long time. And I suppose I'll always try to do that. I think we as believers have to not just stick to the church, but but step outside of those walls. And so I'll always do that, but- 100%. Yeah, and but right now, you know, I really feel I, I love that I'm writing CCM music again, being able to make one of those records again. It's been a I've never made a CCM solo album, so this will be my first wow. one. And I've made solo country records, but never a solo Christian record, and so I'm excited about that. Writing with some great guys that are from Nashville, and which I've never really done before, even with Third Day, and so you know, I I kind of have the best of both mm -hmm. worlds, where I'm able to um, be in this. Christian music world that I love and that influenced me so much and where I've had, you know, 
a good, um, how can I, you know, a good uh, stage to be able to share my faith, but at the same time, also continue to do shows uh, where I'll go into some places that Third Day never would have gone and, and hopefully reach some people that, like I said, never would listen to Christian music. That's powerful, man. Now, I, w- I want to ask you this because as a man of faith, man, I know that, you know, uh, a few years, I think it was one or two years ago, your wife actually went through uh, something that was super crazy. She actually had a brain aneurysm. She actually survived a brain aneurysm, which, you know, I have a couple friends that have died from that. And most people that you, you know, that go through those type things, they don't come out on the other side. Usually it's it's a death sentence, you know. Tell me a little bit, what was it like as a, as a man of faith going through that? And how did you lean on God? How did you trust in him? Kind of take me through that whole thing of what happened. I don't know, it was, it was, was it two years ago that that happened? Take me through that whole story there. It was actually the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So this coming up Thanksgiving will be a year. Wow. Just about, I don't know, a month ago, whatever it was, she had her, maybe a month and a half ago, she had her six month checkup. So it's less wow. than a year now. Um, it just kind of happened out of nowhere. I'm so thankful that I was actually home when it happened. Usually, you know, that was on a Saturday. Usually I'll be gone on a Saturday. Five in the morning, I heard her making some noise. I thought she was having a bad dream. So I tried to reach over, try to wake her up, and she wasn't waking up. So I kind of freaked out, got up, turned the lights on. She wasn't responding to me, so I called 911. Took a couple of hours for us to figure out, even once she was at the hospital, to know what was going on and when we found out. She had a routine, uh, or not routine, but just like her surgery right away. And it's like, it was almost like I didn't really have time to freak out. And the doctors and the nurses and the staff all did such a great job of not freaking out. You know, of course, they'd seen this stuff a million times before. Right. Even when they said, hey, she has a brain aneurysm, I'm like, like, cool, what's that? I don't even know what that is. Wow. For people who don't know, it's like your your blood vessel, it's like with a hose, like a water hose, if it it gets used a lot, there's a spot, it softens up and it kind of bubbles up. And so that bubble is actually the aneurysm and it gets weak and then when it bursts, you get blood on your brain, you know, and so it's not a good thing. You usually have a stroke because of that. And like you said, we had found out later on that about a third of the people actually die when they have a a third have long-term mental or physical defects, uh, deficiencies, and then a third end up being fine. And here we are not even a year later and nobody would ever know that it happened to Amy. I'm thankful thankful for so many prayers. I remember when, um, right before she goes to have a procedure done, the doctors are about to wheel her in and she says, hey, I want you to go to Instagram and I want you to post you know what's going on so people will be praying i was like man i don't want to do that i don't want to turn this into a thing you know i don't want to yeah. be in the news and i don't want my phone ringing off the hook and i just wanted to be like just us know about it right her, her procedure was like an hour long and about 30 minutes in so i'm like halfway and the doctor did a great job of calling me like every 20 30 minutes to saying this is where we're at she's doing great here's the next thing we're doing uh about halfway through i was like man what if she does pass away Mm. And I said, the last thing my wife asked me to do, if I don't do that, I'm going to feel horrible. And wow. so I went on Instagram, I just said, y'all pray for Amy, here's the situation. And of course, right away, bzz, bzz, my phone's ringing, I put it to, bzz, bzz, I mean, just constant. And so I'm so thankful, don't get me wrong, I'm so thankful now that that happened and that we had so many people praying, but at the time I was just mad. Man, I didn't want to yeah. deal with anybody else. I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't even want... Like, I didn't even have anybody at the hospital. I told my parents, her parents, I told everybody, stay home. There's nothing you wow. can do, and I just want to be alone right now. And that's normally not me. Normally, I'm like, I want everybody around. But for some reason, this was just a situation where I needed it to be me and her and God. Right. Now, when, when that was happening, did the doctors, did they actually tell you, like, you know, this is something that is life-threatening. We don't know if she's going to come out okay. Was that kind of part of the frustration? No, they, no, not really. I mean, that's why I said I wasn't freaking out because they were really like, hey, this is kind of a, this is something that happens and this procedure is routine. And they would go through, it was real fast. It was like 10% chance that this is going to happen and a 10% chance that she's going to lose, you know, this. And then, but it was all like, but is this something she has to do? And they were like, yeah, she's got to do it. Well, then let's wow. do it. And so we didn't have really time to, to worry about it. I was just, and honestly, I feel like part of it too is like, if you're really true in your faith, um, not that you won't get challenged and not that you won't get afraid and not that you won't cry, but it's just like, if you really truly have that belief that yeah. God loves us and has the best for us, then uh, 
then you're just everything all your relationships and your thing your life and everything that you possess you you got to have it with hands you know your hands and your arms open going god assures and yeah. I'm, god you know my heart more than i know it. you know that i don't want to lose my wife but your will be done and yeah when we reach that place man it's and it's listen it's not because i'm some strong man of faith it's because god has given me that faith you know amazing man how how has god changed both of you guys in the past year like your marriage and just the way that you look and after going through something like that because you do realize man life can be taken in, in a blink of an eye you can be gone how has that changed your relationship i'm sure you guys value and appreciate each other even more now after going through something like that yeah absolutely i mean you 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 know that every day is a second chance yeah day that you're given you're reminded that you know it could have been a possibility that we don't have didn't have this together and so you're just thankful i think that's the main thing is you're like so thankful you're thankful for the friends that prayed and supported us and sent you know uh, gift cards to to restaurants so that we didn't have to worry about feeding the kids yeah and, you know flowers and and just all kinds of prayers and support people babysitting all these things you just you you get more thankful and grateful for what you have already yeah that's powerful man now talking about your family um man i wanted to talk i've been excited to talk about this because you've done something that's real dear to my heart you actually have four kids um two of them are adopted you have five kids what what are their names real quick my oldest is uh 21 she's in college her name is scout okay scout uh my second one is cash uh, he's he's a freshman in college now. He's okay. 17. And then Cami Love is 16. Or she, yeah, she's 16. She's a senior in high school. And then we have our uh, the first one we adopted, Emmanuel. He's 11. Okay. Our second adoption is Bertie Claire, who's 10 years old. They're in sixth and fifth grade. Wow, that that's powerful, man. Take me through that whole process because I adopted my daughter. She was we adopted her at birth we actually went and cut the umbilical cord brought her home with us and funny enough she was born in uh in nashville tennessee and i always tell people my daughter's actually black i'm nicaraguan salvadorian my wife is black filipino and mexican and our daughter is black salvadorian guatemalan <laughs> so i'm like how do you get a black salvadorian guatemalan kid from nashville that's the last place i would think that i'd find that but but it's crazy what was that experience like for you adopting these kids and and where are they from are they from haiti um where they where where are your kids from? They're from here in Atlanta, in the Atlanta area. Yeah, wow! Son, now, take son. me through that experience. What that was like adopting them? Because man, I see something that's man. First of all, I commend you for doing that, and so beautiful. I love when I pick up my phone and I'm looking through your stories, and I see you hanging out with your kids, skateboarding or at the water, doing all kinds of stuff, man. How was you know? I always say you know we people say wow, that's amazing that you changed their lives, but really they're the ones that change our lives. You know, what was that whole experience like of adoption for you? Yeah, I mean, you hit it, man. You said it. I think I'll, I'll say this and then I'll rewind to the question. Yeah. Um, when you, there's a little bit of pride. I'm just being honest with you. I can mm -hmm. be honest, right? Yeah, for sure. 100. Pride, you know, when you go to do this thing, because you think to yourself, man, I'm doing this good thing. Here's a child who, who may have nothing. They may not have a family. Um, you don't know where the road's going to lead for them, and you're like, I'm, you know, in your in your thoughts, you think, well, I'm sa possibly saving them from a horrible, horrible life, right? And there's a little bit of pride, not a lot, but you think about that, you know, right? I don't know how you can't, and you kind of pat right. yourself on the back a little bit. Yep. Well, look at this great thing we're doing, and then about whatever, a week, two weeks into it, you go, oh, oh, they're doing so much more for me than I'm for doing. Me. And so adoption, man, you know, I'm sure you've heard stories. There's some, it's not easy. Uh, we've, right. we've been able to be very fortunate in both of our adoptions that both have been amazing. The children are amazing. And, and um, you know, there's struggles that will, will come with their, with their age, with them being black and being in a white family. Their struggles will be something later on when they get more in their middle school and high school years. Right. But right now, it's been an amazing thing. We saw the influence that, that so many families had on us. We had good friends like like the Chapman, Stephen Curse Chapman mm -hmm. and Mary Beth Chapman. Um, 
our, our best closest friends, the Nasser family, David and Jennifer Nasser, um, they had adopted and we saw just the love that they had for these children and how it changed yeah. them and their families uh, for the better. And so Amy and I, when we were in college, when we were dating it, we were both working in an after school program and it was a pretty diverse, uh, you know, little school that we were at. And there were Hispanic kids and Asian kids and black kids and white kids all running around playing. And we just thought it was such a beautiful picture of heaven and such mm. a beautiful picture of what the church should be and can be. And we just thought, wouldn't it be great if our family was like this? So yeah. we, you know, when you're in that, that dating stage and it's getting real serious and you know you're probably going to get married and you start asking those questions what do you think about kids and all that stuff right talked about adopting and then as we got married and started having our biological children uh we had two our second and third were back to back so about 18 months in a row she was pregnant Uh, wow and uh so when it was time to start talking about having kids again she's like she said, we can have kids, but I'm not having the kids. Let's remember that adoption thing we talked about years ago. And we'd gone through a couple of years where, um, you know, we weren't on the same page. There'd be a few months where she's like, I'm all about it. Let's go. And I'd be like, no, nah, no, nah, we're good. And then if we'd flip and I'd be like, okay, now I'm ready. It's time. And she goes, well, I'm not ready now. And it took us a couple of years to finally where God had placed us on the same page together. And then as we started doing some research and, and checking into how, you know, how to do it, how to go about adopting a child. Um, you know, there's, I could go on and on about it, you know, know how it is, but, but it's just a beautiful thing, man. It's something that's changed our lives and opened up our eyes to not only needs that are in the world and needs in our area. And that's why we adopted, um, from the Atlanta area because there's such a need here. Yeah. We were going to adopt internationally. Uh, in fact, I wanted, it's, it's so interesting that you say that because I wanted to adopt from Haiti. And wow. I saw the wonderful ministry that Mark's doing down there and uh, yeah. and, feet, and that's what we wanted to do. And then some things happened and we just realized we'd seen the need here in Georgia, in the state of Georgia. And so that's why we adopted them. We got our son, Emmanuel, when he was a month old. He was born downtown Brady Hospital in Atlanta. And my, my daughter, Bertie Claire, we got her, she literally, the day after she, we didn't even know, we weren't even trying to adopt again. We got a call and mm-hmm. I was on Winter Jam tour and we had uh, earthquake in Haiti had happened. And we heard some, oh, yeah. we had heard some kids were being brought to Atlanta, not to be adopted, but just needed a home to, to live in for a little while while they, they built the infrastructure back up in Haiti. And so we sent a couple of emails and said, hey, our home's open, we can keep a couple of kids or whatever for a little while you know, let us know. Well, somebody responded back to us. It was a Sunday night. I remember this. And we walked out of the arena from doing the show and uh, somebody responded back and said, we don't know about Haiti yet, but there's a little girl that's going to be born in just a couple of hours and we don't know where to put her. Would you like to adopt her? And we're like, no, 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 no. We already got a baby. We just adopted him. He's, he was, it was a week before his birthday. It wasn't even a year old. So we were like, wow, we a baby right now. We were just wanting to help out. And so the next morning we prayed about it and we went to the hospital to see her. She was, she had just born a few hours before that. And I walked in, it wasn't fireworks. It wasn't emotional. I saw her wrapped up in her little pink blanket. I went, that's my daughter right there. I just knew, you know, and uh, just knew and took her home. (laughs) That is powerful, man. I want to ask you real quick. What was it like? Because for us, it's different. My, My daughter, she's the only one that we have. Um, but for you, obviously having three other kids, what was it like bringing, you know, two other kids and now them getting all the attention, especially as babies, was yeah. there a little bit of conflict there? Was there a struggle or was it kind of like a beautiful thing that everything just kind of worked out beautifully? Yeah, it worked out beautifully. It took a little bit of time. I think our youngest, who's our middle right now, she was just five at the time. Okay. So was the baby of the family, you know, even at five. And so for her... Yeah. It was a little bit and so you have to you have to think about those things you have to think about birth order and age of kids you're adopting and all that stuff and and we made sure that we had great conversations with them and there's there's this balance of not you want to ask the children how they feel but you also have to let them know that you're the parents and you're making the decision and so right. when, we, when we told them that we were doing this we explained to them why and uh you know it's funny now my middle um we tell we tell her you know when when the babies when we were adopting them you were five and you didn't really want to adopt them because you want to be the baby and she just rolls her eyes she goes i can't believe i did that so baby you were five <laughs> years old you didn't know 
They yeah. didn't take very long at all till you know, this, that's the other thing, the other kind of myth that I want to share with people. I think some people feel like, because I have a lot of friends who have, have problems, um, you know, having biological children, but they don't. That was not they think they think that they're not going to love the children. I th even for me, man, I was like, I'm going to love because I have three biological children already. I said, I'm going to love this little boy, you know, 85%. But that's good enough. That's better than nothing, right? Like, I'm going to love him pretty good. He'll be my son, but I won't love him as much as these the real, you know, the real kids. Yeah. And, and that's over with quick. You, you soon yeah. realize there's a spiritual thing that goes deeper than even your biological children. And I don't want right. to say I love the adopted right. ones more, but there's just there's this depth and there's this thing that's so different that when you choose, when you say, I'm going to take this one in, there's nothing you can do for them to be separated from you, from your family. And so, so um, yeah. you know, that's a wonderful, I think it's the same thing with God. You know, in, in Ephesians, in the first chapter, when, when Paul is writing about God adopts us. Our minds don't understand. Our Western minds don't grasp what Paul is trying to say there. That right. back in the Jewish day and thousands and hundreds and thousands of years ago, when you had a child that you didn't didn't, you know, follow your rules, you could actually divorce your child. You could and you you wipe your hands and, and say, I don't have any responsibility for you. Mm. But the but the law was if you adopted a child, there was nothing that you could do to to get rid of that child or not be responsible for them. And so wow. what Paul is saying is like, once you've been adopted, he's not going to get rid of you. You are his forever. Man, that that's powerful. You know, and the other thing what you're talking about is when people say, um, and Pete, I know we got five minutes, but we're going to go a little bit longer. The beautiful thing with this is this is just too good. We're going to take the show a little bit longer. But the, the crazy thing is when you have a kid, some people do ask that, like, how well, how do you love that kid if it's not from, you know, from your it's your actual bloodline? And, and that's like I'm like, how can you even think that if you don't love like love is love, you know, and it's like you're saying there is something deeper when you adopt because you you chose. It's not something that just happened or something that was, well, we didn't we weren't expecting it. You actually choose to adopt a child and the crazy thing is i always say because people always say well how do they feel or this i'm like there's no difference because at the end of the day it's like i always say blood isn't what makes you a father blood isn't what makes you you know that kid mine i always say there's so many fathers out there that get a woman pregnant and they leave and they're gone and then there's other fathers that come in and they might marry that girl and be with them and raise that child from when they're young and if you ask that kid well who's your dad they're not going to say the kid that was what i say the sperm donor they're going to say it's the it's the man that raised me that's what makes that person my dad and so it's powerful and it's like you're saying she's changed our lives completely and there's just something that you feel it's like it's like almost hard to believe this isn't my bloodline this isn't because to them you know to you you feel like i love that kid just like anything else and you having other kids i'm sure you're like they're just as special as one two and three is you know um there's no difference between them and people a lot of times don't understand that what would you say because i had a pastor in miami especially in the latino community we're big on family but we're so big on family that sometimes there's a lot of people that they're like, well, no, we don't want to, you know, they kind of look down on adoption and they say, well, we don't want to do that because, you know, that's not really our kid. We're not sure if we should go that route. And they keep trying and trying and trying to have their own, which was in our case, my wife had endometriosis and we couldn't really make that happen. So what do you say to someone that's maybe contemplating that's that's saying, Lord, you know, I don't know, man, I really want to have my own kid. But it's like I tell people and like you were saying earlier, you know, our thoughts are not his thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Sometimes he guides you a different way. What would you say to people that are thinking about adopting a child right now? I would say it, it's a beautiful thing, but it doesn't, just like having a biological child, mm -hmm. uh, it's hard. You know, being a parent is tough. It teaches you how selfish you are. Uh, it's about sacrifice and giving. Uh, and yet there's so much in return. That's a beautiful thing. You know, there's going to be, that's, I haven't really gotten on my soapbox that much to promote adoption because I mm -hmm. have heard some bad stories. I've heard, right. you know, especially when you adopt an older child, sometimes they've yeah. been so much trauma and so much junk that yep. it's hard, you know, for them to adapt to being in a home and being with a family. Right. But, you know, it's, I, I would say once again, it's just, there is no, just because someone is from a different bloodline or a different color skin or whatever, 
you know, think about your friends, when you're close, close friends, or, or even your spouse, there is a great, great love for those people. And you're not in the same bloodline, you know, you're not in the, sometimes the same color. And so it, it, it is shown, it's evident in that, in our friends and the one in our family that we pick. And so it can be shown even more so in adoption. That's powerful, man. We got a couple minutes, but like I said, P-Dog, we're going to extend this a little bit more because I got a couple things I want to ask. One of the things that I really wanted to ask that I, that I just asked Mark Stewart, because obviously he has two adopted kids of his own, with all the racism and all this stuff that's going on, something that I asked him, I said, you know what, you as a white guy in the South, same as you, you're in Atlanta, you know, you having two black kids and having a black son in particular, as, as a white man with a black son do you have that same talk that most black dads have with their black kids in fear of them being shot in fear of them you know going out and being pulled over and stuff happening do you have that same talk with your kid and if so what is it yeah absolutely uh you know it's you you try to you try to do it as well as you can of course i never had that talk no one ever had you know have that talk with me and yet i've heard you know we've done a bunch of research things we've read things that we've seen about what to say and it's uh that's the thing I'm, I'm fortunate that my 11 year old is still a little he's really such a sweet kind heart still real innocent and just doesn't get it. he doesn't fully understand when he sees stuff you know like george floyd on tv or and it seems like every week something new one's coming around he's like i don't i don't he literally says i don't get it i don't this doesn't make sense to me yeah and we say, buddy it doesn't make sense to us either you know but it's but unfortunately it's where it's at and it's where things are and hopefully, I think, you know, one of the good things about COVID is that it got everybody kind of, you know, in their homes and kind of like just almost agitated to a sense where there were things that were blew up in a good way. Things right. had to come out, things that had to be said that weren't said, um, you know, some stands that needed to be made that, that people normally wouldn't have if life had just been normal. And so I think that's a positive thing that that's come from COVID, you know, of, of many things and of, and of horrible things as well. But yes, that we've had that conversation with him, with both our uh, our daughter as well, and just going, it's not fair. It's not fair um, that you have to worry when you in just a few short years and five years you're going to be driving, and then if a cop pulls you over, you have to just go ahead and put your hands out the window and yes sir and no sir and you know and just get ready to be harassed and it's just it's not fair and i hate that for my son it makes me angry knowing that my son that i love so much has to has to worry about that and think about that right you know what man talking to mark also this week another thing is i don't know was your son a black panther fan and, and if so how did he feel when he heard of the passing of, uh, of my man, um, you know, going this week. What, what was that like for him? Mark was almost in tears because he was like, this is my son finally got a black superhero. And it's like he's gone. And he was like, this was his favorite person in the world. And now he's no longer here. Uh, did you go through anything like that? And what was that like for him? If so deep, deep sorrow. I mean, it was such a, not only was it an amazing role that he had, but he was an amazing man besides yeah. that role. I posted on Instagram the other day of his speech. You know, he went to Howard University and yep. he had an amazing speech a couple of years ago there and shared his faith through that speech. And it just even more opened up the hero uh, that Chadwick Boseman was, you know, off camera than he was on camera. So he's a big time, big time heavy loss. And those are some huge shoes to fill the, if there's any bit of good that that can happen from this tragedy and from this awful thing is that the crown can be passed on. I have a good friend who's a, a young black actor in Hollywood and I said, go get the crown. And I mean that in a good way, hopefully not, a, not an offensive way. It's like that crown is, is, is up now to take that role and I want him to do it, you know? And so- yeah. Hopefully there'll be someone else to step in Chadwick's shoes and, and to, you know, nobody's ever going to take his place. He's the first king. He's the first right. black king. Yeah. He will stand forever. You know, yeah. just in the same way, nobody's going to take Muhammad Ali's place. But there right. will be other champions. And so I'm, I'm excited about that next champion. Yeah, and talking about Chadwick Boseman, um, one of the crazy things, I don't know if you knew, but I just learned recently that 
you know, he was this guy who really admired Denzel Washington. And Denzel Washington actually sent an envelope, didn't even know who he was, didn't know him personally. And he actually paid for his college tuition. He paid for him to go through college. And then, did you know this story? Well, he didn't pay for his college. He paid for oh. a trip overseas to, to England to, to do an acting course. There you go. Um, Chadwick and some other students had had uh, auditioned and got the call and yet they couldn't afford to go. And mm. Alicia Rashad uh, got in touch with Denzel and said, these students aren't able to afford, it, afford the trip. And Denzel said, I got it. So it's an amazing story, yeah. Powerful, and then he got to honor him, you know, several years later when, when Denzel was being honored. Now, hey man, we, we got to jump into the House Arrest 10. We're out of time here, but before we go, we do like to uh, to ask about, you know, this or that to find a little bit more about you. So we're going to start off with the House Arrest 10 right here. Uh, number one, uh, Garth Brooks or Willie Nelson? Oh, Willie Nelson all day. No, okay. no offense to Garth Brooks. He's great. I've seen him in concert, an amazing artist, but Willie Nelson is, is my guy. I kind of figured you'd say that. Old school, no old school you know that there you go there you go number two you're a guitarist so uh gibson or fender oh man that's a tough one i'm gonna go gibson because they i play acoustic guitar and that's what gibson you know makes amazing acoustic guitar so gibson okay good i was hoping to ask you some tough ones like that number three you're a country guy so do you like um there's a little bit of both out there do you like desert or mountain i'm gonna go mountain mountain okay so you like to get up in the mountains now are you a baseball guy or a football guy yes <laughs> <laughs> gotta give me one baseball or football i am a professional baseball fan and i'm a college football fan look hey in fact check it out i don't have lighting over here look yeah i'm from alabama so you gotta you gotta pull for the roll tide, ooh, ooh. tide there son hey there you go i like that i like that Okay, so a baseball guy who loves college football. Yes. Number five, chicken fried steak or biscuits and gravy? Chicken fried steak. Okay. Fried steak, yeah. That was an easy one for you. Number six, Superman or the Incredible Hulk? Superman. I'm a DC Comics guy, so Superman. Okay, let's see if this one's a little tougher. Number seven, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Come on, man. Okay, I'm the same way. Let me see number eight. What kind of dog would you prefer? You let me see if you're more of a family guy or you like the tougher dogs. Golden retriever or pit bull? Neither one. Neither one. My my baby girl asks for a dog every single day and I've stood strong for twenty one years now I've had kids. We're not getting a dog, so neither one, but if we were a golden retriever. Okay. Are you more of a horse guy? No, you're I'm, from the country. Animals, man. I'm, a, I'm okay. afraid of animals. That should have been actually what I asked. Horse or, or dog? Number nine. Would you rather create history or delete it? Create it. Create it. I think we can learn from, learn from you know our mistakes, and there've been a million of them, but there's been some great stuff too. And I'm, I'm a optimist, so I say create. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a creator anyway, so. Yep, I like that. All right, and number 10, Harley or Mustang? Mustang. I don't, I don't, I can't get on a bike, man. So I'm going to drive that car. Mustang. All right, man. Well, hey, Mac, we want we want to thank you, man, and we appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your schedule to be with us. It's been an honor having you on. And, uh, man, there's so many great things that, that I would love to have you back on the show to be able to talk about. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for opening up with us. Um, you almost got you to shed a tear, but I didn't. But hey, man, seriously, thank you. On behalf of everyone here at the House of Red Show, we thank you for your time. And we just pray for continued success. Again, tell everyone where that tour is, where they can catch it, and also all your social media handles so they can follow you. Yeah, just go to MacPowell.com. You'll get all the tour dates. And also on Instagram, at MacPowell. And uh, come check out some music on there, too. There you go. Hey, Mac, we appreciate you, brother. Love you. And uh, we'll see you soon, brother. God bless. You know what it is. Ladies and gentlemen, it's your man DJ P Dog in the mix, and you know what it is. You know what time it is. It is time for the house arrest after party. And we're gonna take y'all down memory lane. Hey yo, T-Bone. I know you remember this joint. Let's go now. This is my man Carmen. 
righteous invasion of truth, riot. Webster's dictionary say a riot is like an unrestrained uproar in a public place, turbulent right in your face with the facts. We're gonna spread God's word and attack every lie you've heard, like the doctrines of men that are still all amazed in the silver race. So that God's word today is true. We look to heaven and our mansions in the sky, and it's true we've got the gates of eternity in our what? What we need? Yo, turn me up Let's go. Bless God's people. Kurt Franklin. Toby Mac. DJ Mac. Let's go. Let's go. DJ Mac, talk to him. DJ
Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. 